welcome to High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm Will Brom. I'm John Story, and together we're the New West Guitar Group. On today's episode of High Action, we're featuring Martin Taylor. Special thanks to our Patreon members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on High Action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash highaction. Welcome, everybody, to episode 42 of High Action. Boy, we're getting really close to 50. Only eight left. Um, Today, we're talking about guitarist extraordinaire Martin Taylor. And interviewing him was such an honor and a pleasure. Um, his archtop playing, his solo guitar archtop playing, is astounding. And we had so much fun diving into music with him. Perry, what what were some things that you took away talking with Martin, particularly about hearing music through the archtop guitar rather than maybe a semi-hollow or an electric? Gosh, I mean, there were so many things from that interview that were really amazing uh, and to hear him speak about it. He's long been one of my favorite players on the instrument. Um, he's just, he's really intelligent. You know, he, he's really well thought out. Like the way he plays is not a mistake. You know, every little aspect he's seemed to have thought about and given great consideration to everything from playing with a pick or his fingers. Uh, and you can hear it in his playing, you know, like one thing that always stands out to me about his playing are the bass lines. Mm-hmm. Ace lines are just happening, you know, and and the way he gets like little fills going with him, like little triplet fills, like a you know a bass player would do, like a, the the whole little flub it a boom 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 book it a boom yeah, that kind of stuff. Martin does that on the guitar so well, and it sounds great. So, yeah, there were a lot of cool things, and I hope all the listeners out there uh, enjoy this really informative episode because it'll just improve your guitar playing just from listening to this episode. I think. Yeah. John, you were talking to him, him about getting his sound, whether it's live or, you know, in a room. And especially on an archtop guitar, getting getting a clear sound in a live performance is not the easiest thing, as we three know. What were some things that stood out to you about, about Martin achieving his sound wherever he is? He's definitely a player who I can't wait someday to see live. I've never gotten to see him play because um, the footage I've seen of him and his a, a few little live recordings I've heard of him, yeah, his sound is really nice live. And uh, you can tell he's experimented a lot with under-the-bridge pickups. I mean, I was fun about the interview today, learning more about how he got his sound. But, you know, one thing that I think all of us listening to the podcast can probably say is the, with all these great players that we're talking to, you know, the sound comes from where what we're hearing, you know, and playing a lot and really working on connecting what we're hearing to the instrument. We fight the instrument. There's certain things about it that are difficult, but it's not the instrument that's going to ultimately make that sound. And Martin talked about that today. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's great for us to be connecting with people like him because he's got a lot of experience in this world exclusively playing archtop yeah. jazz uh, guitars. It was so inspiring. I can't, I can't use that word enough here. Um, it was an honor to talk to him, and we can't wait to share this with you guys. But before we let you listen to that interview, we want to remind you to head on over to Patreon, the New West Guitar Group Patreon page. Go ahead and pledge a little something and uh, you know, keep, funding, keep funding this wonderful thing that we're doing. We're having fun over here. We hope you're having half as much fun 
listening as we are curating it. So without further ado, episode 42 with Martin Taylor. Martin Taylor, welcome to the High Action Podcast. We're so thrilled and honored to have you. Uh, you're coming to us from Scotland, correct? Yeah, I'm in Scotland. And, uh, you know, I've been here since I played my last concert on uh, March the 5th, 2020, with Ulf, with Ulf Vicanius. We played in Bordeaux in France, and I managed to fly home just in time. And I've been here ever since, and it's the longest I've ever been in one place in my entire life. <laughs> wow, yeah. No no airports, no trains, no hotels. Yeah, no. But even before that, you know, I, I've probably since I left school when I was 15 and went on the road. And even here, you know, uh, even at home in Scotland, I was always going backwards and forwards to places. So it's it's really quite interesting to see how... Other people live. <laughs> have you found that your daily routine has changed much in the last year since you have so much time now? Well, it's a little different for me because even though, you know, I was very busy as a touring musician, I also had all the things that I did here too. I mean, I started my online interactive guitar school in 2009 mm -hmm. with artist works out in Napa, California. So that keeps me busy. And uh, I would very often have to go and fill responses for my students in in hotel hotel rooms, sometimes in the bathrooms even. Right. <laughs> you know, when I was on the road. So I've always got a lot to do here, and I've been writing books. I wrote three books last year, and then I have my Patreon site. Mm -hmm. So I actually have a lot to do. I have to... I actually have to stop myself every so often from, from coming in here <laughs> and go out and take my dog for a walk. You know? right. Otherwise, uh, it, it's just too easy just to open that door. You know, having this, this is in my house, so uh, it's very easy just to open the door, walk in, and then get sucked into this guitar world. We totally know what you mean. Sometimes living living in the same building as your workspace kind of like breaks down any wall that you might have had between work and recreational life yeah it's very interesting because a lot of people are finding this out now and i know some of my relatives some of my family that are you know always went to an office or went somewhere and have to do that from home and some like it some some don't it's interesting but but the whole thing about the um the routine it's yeah. I, I'm in. A, I'm in a definite routine every day. I get up and I and I do things. I realized this was going to be for the long haul right from the beginning. I didn't know how long it was going to be, but I thought. And my, my wife and I spoke about it, and I said, "Okay, we've got to get into some kind of thing here." Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And my wife does exercises. She does like uh, um, keep fit things, you know, with with her family on Zoom. Uh, we meditate every day just to keep our, our heads uh, where they need to be. We've got a dog. I walk out outside, and uh, I like to cook. 
And yeah, do you, do you know what I think is that all the years I've been on the road, there have been so many times when I've been somewhere and thought, you know, I'd really like to do this. I'd like to do that. All these different things I want to do, mm-hmm. but I haven't got time. You know, I'm on the road so much. So I just flipped my way of thinking to that. So sometimes I th- I'm thinking, oh, it'd be nice to be back out on the road and go and do this and play, play concerts. But I've just flipped it around. I said, okay, now's your chance. Yeah. And I'd said to my wife just uh, last year, do you know it'd be nice to take a year off from touring? Your wish is you know, I didn't. We're not of that generation where you took a gap year right. or the... Or the <laughs> You know, we just come from a kind of working-class, blue-collar uh, background, and people like us, we didn't, we wasn't even, didn't even know about some something like that. And I just, what about a, a geriatric gap uh, year? That would be really nice, wouldn't it? So I'm having it. Amazing. At home. Yeah. And I've travelled so much in my all through my life that it's it's actually very exotic for me to stay at home. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's nice but but I know I you know I'm saying these I'm saying this now but so many of my musician friends uh, are finding it very difficult sure and not not just from the financial point of view but um psychologically cuz mm-hmm. I I'm fortunate that as, as much as I love to play for people and I really do uh I'm not kind of addicted to performing mm. and which is it's a very easy addiction to get mm-hmm. once you've been on stage and you get that you get that vibe and you come off buzzing and and I know a lot of my friends are, are missing that very much and but it, they'll get back to, at some point. We just have to find other things to focus on while we're in this situation. Sure, I tried looking up some of your early life and. Apart from the fact that you're born in the UK and started guitar at the age of four, mm. I couldn't find much. You're a bit of a mystery. So I'm oh, wondering really? if you might might give us a little summary of uh, of your early life and, and what connected you to music. I actually I wrote a book about it once. Wow, okay. That's what okay. you should have told me. I'd have I'd have got a book oh, man. for you. <laughs> okay, so I'll tell you yeah. how it all began. Now there's a guitar when there's a guitar on the on the wall there. That that blonde arch top. That's uh-huh. a Hofner president. Now, that isn't the original one, but my father decided at the age of 30 that he wanted to start playing music because he was very musical, but he didn't come from an environment that was was kind of encouraging that. Mm-hmm. Um, so when he was 30, when I would have been about three years old, I guess, uh, he sent away... Uh, in in America, you've got a uh, you had a catalog called Sears and Roebuck, mm-hmm. yep. and we had one here called Bell's Bell's catalog, and my dad sent away for it. not that guitar, but it was identical to that. I actually bought that one for him on his sixtieth birthday. Many years, no longer with us now, but and so I just remember, and I would have been about probably about three years old, three or four years old. This this guitar arriving. And my dad opening the case, I didn't know what it was. And I just remember seeing it. And I remember, I can still remember the smell of this brand new guitar. You know, that, <laughs> see, John, John's nodding there. Yeah, John, <laughs> he's, he's got it. Oh, yeah, so, the glue. I mean, you know, that glue. 
right? You got to be careful. <laughs> all of my all of my instruments, I like, they've all got a different smell. Steve Howe and I talk about it. He's really into the, the smell of guitars. <laughs> and I just remember that. Just remember this magical thing. And my dad was really into jazz, and my mum too. Actually, uh, was a, was a big jazz fan mm. as well. Um, but. My dad used to play a lot of records like Louis Armstrong, Big Spider Beck, um, uh, Lester Young, all the, the the great American jazz musicians. But there was one thing that really, really kind of captured me was he would play these recordings of the Hot Club of France, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of Django Reinhardt and Stefan Grappelli. And I should explain something as well. My father was a gypsy, so... Mm-hmm as well as being a jazz musician, he really, he's a gypsy man, he used to say, you know, he, you know, he's one of us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, my dad used to play, play these recordings and there was just something, I was mesmerized by music. And, but when Django played, it was, it was if there was a directness to it. And of course I didn't understand it at the time, but I remember saying to my dad, when he plays the guitar, it sounds like he's talking to me. It sounds like words. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that is that, that lyrical, melodic way of, of improvising, which always became a real fascination for me. Sometimes it's in, in the jazz world, it was sometimes very melodic, lyrical improvisation is kind of, has been kind of looked down upon as being, well, it's not kind of cutting edge, you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's, yeah, sure. it's okay. It's actually incredibly, incredibly difficult to improvise in that, that kind of way. Yes, it is. And it's, it's something that, you know, you develop. Fortunately, another thing, my father wasn't, he just picked up the guitar, started to teach himself, and so he wasn't schooled in music. But I remember once, when I was about six years old, I think would have been, I'm kind of guessing here, but I'd already started playing by that time. Mm-hmm. My dad playing a record, and Django was playing this thing, and then it could have been something like Sweet Georgia Brown, one of the things that they, that they played. And then Django went off into this thing, and my dad turned to me and he said, do you know what he's doing there? He's improvising. And I said, well, what's, what's that? And my dad, because he wasn't a schooled musician, if he'd been a professor of jazz, he'd have said, "Well, what he's doing, he's playing the uh, the Lydian mode over right. the, the, the two five one, you know." But my dad says, "Well, what he's doing, they're playing the same chords behind him, but he's just making up another melody as he goes along." And I, I thought the light bulb went on immediately. Yeah, I get that. So when I sit down and I used to play Sweet Georgia Brown with my dad. And then when it came, he said, right, improvise something. And then I would, I mean, it's nothing new. I mean, it's been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. Variations on a theme. Mm-hmm. And then finding different ways of just varying that theme, just playing with the melody, listening to Louis Armstrong playing a melody, and then just um, playing with it and uh, bringing in in other things. And I just kind of got it. So... Playing music and playing the guitar was probably the only thing in my life that has ever come easy to me. And I just got it. So when I went to school and a lot of subjects they were talking about, I didn't really kind of get 
what they were understanding. But if I could relate it to music, I understood it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, mathematics or or any, anything, then um, I would get what they were they were talking about. So you know, I I can't remember the moment I actually picked up a guitar. I can remember playing a ukulele first of all, and. Uh, I'm often asked, you know, when did you decide to play jazz? Well, I, I never did. I always played jazz right from the beginning. I never, <clears throat> I never really played other music mm-hmm. until I became a professional musician. For the first seven years, I became a freelance musician, mm-hmm. and I played all kinds of things. I used to play at dances. I played on the QE2. I went to America for the first time in 1973, mm. playing on the, the band on the QE2. And so uh, I just played whatever ever needs to be. I had one problem, though. There's one problem. I couldn't read music. Oh, okay. So when I took the gig on the QE2, the guy rang me up, the band leader, and he said, um, the trumpet, trumpet player in the band recommended you to, 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 to join the band. We, and he said, we, we leave Southampton in the south of England, um, we cross the Atlantic, we go to New York, then we're based in New York for six months, and then we kind of cruise around the Caribbean for six months all through the winter. Would you like to do it? And I'd only left school a couple of years before, and I was, and you know, I, I didn't like where I was, <laughs> I kind of looked out where, where I was living, and I, the idea of the Caribbean and, and sunshine, you know, a complete uh, um, uh, mystery to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Coming from the UK, I thought, yeah, yeah. I'll do it. So this all started going. I thought, oh, this is fantastic. And then he said to me, oh, just before you go, he said, there's one, just one other thing. He said, you read music, don't you? And I thought, wow, I'm going to lose this gig. So uh, I said, yeah, 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 of course I do. Good answer. <laughs> yeah. Right. Not, not the most honest answer, of course, but... Um, I, it just, it just came. I was so excited. It just came out. And I said, Oh yeah, yeah, of course I, of course I do. So then I, when I, I, I then saw my dad and I said, cause my dad had been in the Navy and I said, how long does it take to cross the Atlantic? And he said, well, it takes, takes seven days, used to take seven days, but you know, um, a ship like the QE2 can do it in five. I said, okay, five days. Days. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've got five hours? days yeah. to learn how to, to read music, or at least before I, before I get found out. That was right. really it. <laughs> but because I had such a good ear, I could just kind of follow things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the second night, the band leader, it was the old old style, you know, he had a baton and everything. I, I was only having to read chord chord charts most of the time but every so often some notes were were there and and kind of if i knew the tune i could play something or play something that i i thought was appropriate Mm -hmm. he sort of sidled up to me while people dancing with his bat on sort of pretending to conduct us and he said you can't read music can you and i said no (laughs) no i can't he said, well, anyway, after, after we, we played, we are in the band room, and he said, look, I, you can't read music, but it's, it's not a problem. He says, I like the way you play, and I like some of the things that you 
you play, mm-hmm. even if you don't play what's what's written. It, it fits really well. Um, he said, but it'd be a good idea if you learn to read music. So he was he was a clarinet player. So he gave me all these books, clarinet music, and I used to go into the into my cabin, uh, sit down there and try and learn this. But I wasn't very good. I, I never actually became a, a good reader, mm-hmm. and certainly never became a sight reader. Um, but you know what happened? I th- I think the reason most of the time in my early days. Uh, I was the, like the youngest, and I was completely out of my depth for those first seven years. I was just kind of hanging in. But a lot of these older guys, they they seemed to like me and like the way I played. And I've often thought about it, and fairly recently I, I, I thought, I know what it is. I just always knew the appropriate thing to play or not to play. Mm-hmm. And I think that was it because I I grew up with the music, so I knew what should be played or or not played. Um, so that that was my my very beginning. So then I uh, I did that for for six months, then I came back to the UK, uh, and then I worked as a freelance uh, musician, mostly in the the London area, and then I started to play quite a lot, uh, you know, in jazz clubs. And start to sort of get known in London as a as a jazz player, playing in clubs like Ronnie Scott's club and getting to play opposite Dexter Gordon and uh-huh. um, Stan Getz and all these these, these great players. Um, getting to, uh, a bit later on working with Barney Kessel and, uh, and players like that. Mm-hmm. And and then in 1979, I got the call to go to France and work with Stefan Grappelli. Yes, yes. So that that was at that point that was that was a, a real pivotal point for me. That was a very 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 special moment in my musical life and my my life generally was was with Stefan. Today's podcast is brought to you by Marchione Guitars, handcrafted instruments made by luthier extraordinaire Stephen Marchione. I have two of his guitars. I have the '59 Semi Hollow, and I have the. OM Acoustic. They play amazing. They sound like nothing else. Completely resonant across the whole body. Uh, Wide frets, just so many overtones, so much beautiful sound coming out of these instruments. All made personally by Stephen by hand. Check them out at MarchioneGuitars.com. And how did that come about? Um, There's also a wonderful documentary about you and Stefan that I watched. Uh, highly oh, yeah. recommended to anyone check out that documentary. But how did you connect with Stefan? <clears throat> well, what happened was when I I played a gig with Barney Kessel. Well, actually, it was the first gig I did with Barney Kessel, but I didn't, we didn't play together. I did the opening set. We got to play together quite a bit uh, later on. And in the audience was a guitar player that I used to listen to on the radio as a kid, a guy called Ike Isaacs. And Ike was actually the guitar player with Stefan at that time. Mm-hmm. And he came down to see him, and he was a lovely guy uh, and a wonderful guitar player, just knew so much about harmony. And he, he came up to me, and he, he said, look, he said, um, come over to the house, and we'll have a play, you see. So I went over to his house, and he was sat, we sat down, and he said, you know, what, what do you – you know, what do you want to do with, with music, you know, play? I said, well, I, I'm really fascinated by solo playing, but I've never really done it. So I 
we got talking about that, and he played solo mm. guitar. It was just beautiful. So he really became my major influence. And I met Stefan the very first time. I think it would have been 1976, uh, literally 10 miles up the road from where I live now, here in Scotland. And they were on a, a, a tour, and I went to see Ike, actually. And he said, uh, when I got there, he said, oh, come and meet Stefan. We went backstage, and I met Stefan. But it, Stefan never remembered that first time we uh -huh. met. But I, but I do remember that. But then just a few years later, 1979, bass, a bass player that was working with Stefan at that time, Ike wasn't working with him by now, um, he, we were doing a gig together, and he said, are you about in, in two weeks' time? Uh, are you free? Uh, I said, well, yeah, what's that? He said, well, we've got these dates in France and Belgium with Stefan, and the guitar player's pulled out. Could you come and do it? So uh, I did. So I went and did that. Although I actually missed the, the first gig because the, the French agent, uh, he told me the first gig was in Nantes. In, in the northwest of France. Uh -huh. And so I went to Nantes, and when I went there, I couldn't find the gig. Oh. And, uh, couldn't, couldn't find anything. So finally I rang him, because remember, this is 1979, yeah. so there's no, there's no cell phones, you know. I'm finding a, a phone, and I'm speaking in schoolboy French to, to people <laughs> right. trying to get enough money to put in the machine. I speak to him, and he, I said, I'm in Nantes, and I, I can't find anybody or the venue. He said, oh, you're, you're in the wrong place. Uh, it's Mont, which is a, a suburb of, of Paris. So, oh, wow. So I missed the first gig. And then the next night, the next gig was in Deauville on the northern coast in, in Normandy. So I went there thinking, Stefan's just going to see me and fire me straight away. Um, but I met him. He says, oh, yeah, he's always making mistakes like that. You know. And then we sat down in the dressing room, and we started to play... Now, I was, only, I was only 22 coming up for 20, I was almost 23, 22. And uh, so we sat down and we started to play. And he, he, Stefan said to me, how you know this music? <laughs> <laughs> how you know this? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I said, I grew up with this music. You know, I know. And he, well, why don't we start playing something else? And then, I, yeah, I know that. And. He was, he was absolutely amazed by it, that uh, this 22-year-old knew all this music. You've got to remember now that this music is very fashionable now. Mm -hmm. But for a long time, it was extremely unfashionable. In fact, I got a hard time from a lot of jazz musicians for working with Stefan because they said, oh, that's not proper jazz. And so you've got to remember the, the, the context of that. And so he was, he was quite amazed by that. So we, we did these gigs and we did a couple of TV shows uh, and then after that, he said, oh, I've got a tour of America in a couple of months' time. Would you like to do it? Which I did, so I went and did that. And then after that, there was another one, and then there was something else. This kind of went on for 11 years. So I I don't even know whether I was really in the band or not, but uh, I just used to go and do these things. Of course, in the meantime, I was doing my own things and making other records, but... To, for any musician, and for a young musician especially, to get to work with somebody and get to be part of the life of somebody that is just such an important figure in that music, mm -hmm. it's such an incredible privilege. And I'm 
I'm grateful for it every single day that 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 happened to to me, and uh, I was able to be become become part of that. And even at the time, I was just thinking, you know, I must remember this, you know, because this this is this is a very 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 special thing. Because also, when you're that young and then working with those older musicians, I mean, Stefan was born in 1908, mm-hmm. so he's, he would have been 100 and something now. So it's, I was talking to someone the other day about it, and it's like you become a kind of a, a time travel bridge. <laughs> you're part of the lineage. <laughs> yeah, because this, this, this guy was saying to me, oh, I'd love to have been able to interview Stefan, but he's not around anymore. I said, no, but I said, you can interview me. I said, and I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to make up stories because actually the truth is so fantastic right. that the, uh, if you just try to make something up, um, you, you don't need to. It, it's, that's why another thing, another responsibility I feel I have is some stories then get, um, get distorted over the years from other people hearing it. And I've said, well, no, actually, it wasn't quite like that. Even some of the stories with Django and Stefan, and you know, I got the the, the real story from Stefan, so it's able. To, it's good. I'm not saying like, oh no, you've got to listen to me. Right. But I said, I actually know the real story because Stefan told me. And you know, speaking of Django, which I could talk about all day, um, especially <laughs> in the last year, I've I've dove into his playing so much. One of the things that you talked about in the documentary that I was referring to, I don't remember the name of this documentary, but it's really great. It was called Meeting Grappelli. Meeting Grappelli. Yeah, you can find it on uh, on YouTube. You were talking about how Django adapted his playing to cut in an acoustic ensemble in dance halls, like yeah. picking closer to the bridge and really just digging in to get that piercing sound. Yeah. Quite innovative. Well, they all did. Stefan, Stefan adjusted his sound as well. That's why you listen to, to, to Stefan. Back then, he was really digging in and swinging. Of course, in later years he played very softly he didn't have to do that so his playing became very virtuosic mm-hmm. you know it was a- amazing what he would do but stefan told me that they would play one way in public and then another way when they recorded and of course the, the reason the reason for the setup of the group the f- the fact that it was a an all string group was because there was no microphones in those days so they all had to be at the same level of, of volume, pretty much. Um, so if once you brought drums and you brought horns in there, you've got you've got this this going on. But they were inspired really by um, contemporaries of theirs who were well known before they were uh, uh, Joe Venuti and Eddie Lang. Mm-hmm. And they, Joe Venuti and Eddie Lang were part of the Paul Whiteman Orchestra back in the 20s who were absolutely huge. And their featured singer was Bing Crosby. And within the, within the, 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 the big band, I mean, they were huge stars. Um, they had a group within a group. So there was Eddie Lang and Joe Venuti used to do these, these things. If you hear some of those recordings, they're just wonderful. And... Stefan and Django were inspired by them. So they, they, it was really Stefan that put the, the group together mm-hmm. because, you know, it wasn't in kind of Django's mindset to put a band together and organize dates and all these kind of things. 
But what happened at, at one point was uh, uh, Charles Delaunay, who, of course, wrote that famous book about Django many years ago, who I, I, I met uh, uh, during the time I worked with Stefan. He wanted them to make a record, and Django didn't want to make the record. The main reason was because Django said he didn't like Charles Delaunay. <laughs> <laughs> Because Charles Delaunay wrote a review about them saying what a load of rubbish it was. Right. <laughs> so, so he wasn't too keen. But then Charles Delaunay came to them and said, I want you to make, make a record. So they fixed up the date, or Stefan fixed up the date with him, told Django, and he said, you've got to be at this place on this day. I remember once walking past this place in Pigal with mm-hmm. Stefan. He said, that's where we did that recording, just up there. And he said... Um, the problem was we all got there and Django wasn't there. Joseph was there and uh, all the guys. So Stefan, Stefan thought, well, I'll see if I can find him. So he then went to every billiard hall, like a pool hall you know, in, in the area, to see if he could find him because he, he was a fantastic billiards player. That's what he loved to do. Finally, after many attempts, he found him in the billiard hall and he said, look, we've got to go and do this recording. Everyone's there. Oh, I don't want to do that. Now, he didn't say, Django didn't say um, records will never catch on or anything like that, but it was something like that, you know, well, oh, it's not, you know, it's, it's, it was kind of something on the periphery. It's like people not that long ago said, oh, the internet, well, you know, it's, it's a load of rubbish. It was like that. Um, so he managed to get him to go. Joseph had his guitar, sat down, and they would record around one microphone, like, like all the bluegrass players play, actually. Round one microphone. And when it was your turn to solo, you just sat closer to the microphone. Those old recordings, if they had a piano on them, the piano was in the hall. That's why a completely, completely different reverb. <coughs> so Fascinating. Django wasn't happy about recording this, but finally agreed to do it, and he thought, right, okay, I'll record it, and then I'll get back to the billiard hall. They recorded it, and he was ready to, to leave, and then, of course, it, it went straight down onto the, the wax, as it, it were. They could play it back immediately. And so he said, well, wait a minute, and they, they played it back. And Django heard it, and he was just, just amazed. Hmm. That's me. <laughs> yeah, and in that time, f- hearing you're playing back was not common like today. You know? Nobody heard that. Right. <laughs> in, the, in those days, it would have been quite something – I can. I mean, my grandparents were of that generation as well, and sure. even just to have a, a photograph of yourself, someone show you a fo- that's you, right? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't. I don't want to overshadow. I, I want to get back to talking about your solo career. Um, but one more fact that I have to bring up is you have a pick of Django's, correct? You have one of his guitar I picks. Do. I saw that video. It's fascinating. Yeah. Now, if I'd thought about it, I'd have brought it down. It's upstairs. <laughs> yeah, it kind of reminds me, kind of looks like a blue chip pick a little bit. I'm, I was curious if they're similar at all. I don't know what that is. Very expensive picks. <laughs> all right, okay. Yeah, yeah, we've all got them laying around. All right, yeah. okay. Getting back to your to your solo playing, what what was the point that you really decided to start making recordings and touring as a solo artist. During the time that I was working with Stefan, I'd had this thing that, uh, about playing solo guitar. And, you know, he was very generous. He always used, 
you know, it wasn't like being a sideman. You know, I was a, a, a featured musician mm-hmm. in the group. So, you know, it's, in the second set, he would always say, uh, and now, ladies and gentlemen, I will leave the stage. My friend Martin Taylor will play for you. And he would leave me to play something solo. And then when I played my solo piece, I would walk up, Stefan would come on, and he would play the piano because he was a very good piano. He would do a little medley on piano, very Art Tatum style. Mm-hmm. So he really encouraged me to do that. And I started taking gigs, you know, uh, playing solo. It was very difficult at first because at that point, my audience were purely a jazz audience. Mm-hmm. So the concept of somebody playing going to see a guy playing guitar completely on his own, playing jazz, was, that, that's so weird. They, they were just, some were just trying to accept Joe Pass doing it, going, well, I don't, I'm not sure about this. So it was quite difficult um, for, for me to, to, to kind, of, kind of get this happening. <clears throat> then, what, again, it's related to Stefan, we were doing a, a concert in in Switzerland, and we were very high up at this uh, ski resort. Mm-hmm. And while I was there, we went. Stefan and I went out, and he said, oh, "I don't feel well." And and I could see he wasn't well. I got him to sit down. When we went back to Paris, he had an appointment with his doctor, and he came out and he, he said, "Doctor said I think I've got a heart, I've had a heart attack." So uh, he had to then go into hospital, get, get all these checkups. I came home, and then Stefan's manager phoned me and said, Stefan's got to take a year off uh, from, from playing because he's had a heart attack. So then, as an expression Barney Kessel used to say, he said, I looked at my diary and got snow blindness. <laughs> <laughs> so I had no work. Yeah. And so I started ringing up some of the real grassroots little jazz clubs mm-hmm. around the UK that I knew and say, I'll come and do a, a solo concert for you. And most of them, the vast majority of them said no. But the, the first one that said yes was a friend of mine uh, who ran a jazz club. And he said, yeah, come and do it. So I went and played this this concert. It was in a city, the city of Lincoln, and I'd kind of worked out what I was going to play. And I'd, I'd played there many times before, so, I, you know, the, the audience were familiar with me and I, I knew some of the audience. It wasn't like big, big gig or anything. And I played the first set, and they seemed to like it. And I'd, I got off and I had a beer. <laughs> oh, thank goodness for that. Went on the second set, and I started playing again. And, of course, because I'd worked this out, uh, with a, with a set list, I got to the end of my set list and realized I still had about another twenty minutes to go. What do I do? <laughs> so I had a sort of a minor panic, and then I just I just turned to everyone in the audience. Any requests? <laughs> so a uh, few people said, "Yeah, called out tunes." Yeah, I know that because I knew all of these tunes. And I knew how to, if I knew the melody of a tune, the chord of a tune, I could play it solo. And I could come up with something that sounded quite semi-arranged, semi-improvised, although it was mostly improvised. 
This is one of the things I teach all my students now, how to do this. So that really saved me. And I played for about another half an hour. And everyone was really happy. I was delirious with, with happiness, having got away with it, <laughs> as it were. And then the word got around from that. Mm-hmm. And then I started getting a few gigs. But then I was, I was with a record company called Lynn Records, who make Lynn um, decks, turn, turntables. They're very well known for that. And uh, I'd made, already made a couple of records for them. And I went to them and said, I'd really like to make an album completely solo because before they were with a band. And again, they had that kind of jazz head on. And they said, oh, no, you can't do a record just playing guitar on, on your own. Yeah. I said, well, I know loads of guitar players in other fields of music that do that. Anyway, and I can do it. Anyway, they, they, uh, they kind of said, okay, we'll, we'll do it. I said, well, I'll need a producer. So I, I called Steve Howe and I said, would you produce it? And he said, yeah, you can come and record it at my place. So I recorded this record called Artistry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was 1993. And thinking that it would just be a little filler record. But what happened, and sometimes just in life generally, little magical things happen. You, you, know, you think you can plan things, but there's all these other things that are going on <laughs> that you can't plan for. And it, it just became very popular among guitar players. And I started getting invited to play at guitar festivals, classical guitar mm. festivals. Classical guitar players really got, got into this record. Um, open tuning, sort of Michael Hedges-style guitar players, acoustic players, rock players got really into this this recording. Mm-hmm. And... I, I was quite amazed by it, but it, then it opened things up so that I didn't just have an audience that were jazz aficionados. There were people that just loved the guitar or just loved music. So that's where it really opened up things uh, for me at that time. It was kind of semi-planned, but not not completely. So, some kind of magic happened that I I don't even want to try and analyze. But it was that recording that Steve wow. uh, produced. That, that really did it for me. Well, speaking of your solo playing, is it okay if I play an excerpt of you playing Shiny Stockings? Okay. This is from Portraits. I, which What year was Portraits? What year did you release that? That was the album I did just after Artistry, so I would imagine it would have been... 94 uh, or something like 94. that. 94, yeah, I think it would have been 94. So here is Shiny Stockings.
not as bad as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> it's so beautiful, man. <laughs> I haven't heard it in such a long oh time. Oh, my gosh. Do you know uh, what strikes me straight away? I can tell that I was a lot younger then because I'm playing it so much faster. <laughs> I would never play it at that speed now. <laughs> I'd get more into the groove. But I was obviously a young, hungry guy. Uh, you still are young, Martin. You still are, man. And again, it's hard <laughs> to have you here today. You know, I consider you to be like one of the empresarios of the entire jazz guitar scene, man, because you've oh. done so much to connect to younger musicians. Um, I know our buddy Julian Lodge, you worked with him when, when he yeah. was really, really young. And, um, and man, you know, uh, folks like you, players like you and Pisano and who we work with out here in L.A., John, of course, yeah. um, just talking about the stories like working with Stefan Grappelli, the direct lineage to Django. I mean, man, it means so much. So we really appreciate you sharing that with, with us here in New West Guitar Group, but also with the high action listeners and man, I got so many questions now. I had, there were a few I had planned, but I'll just keep it short. Cause I know we got to get on to Perry. Um, one of the things I'd love to ask your thoughts on, um, you had the opportunity to record on Concord fantasy milestone Columbia. I know you released an album on Columbia in 99 called kiss and tell. Um, I'm just curious. Do you feel like it's a better world today for jazz guitarists to kind of get themselves out there independently with social media and the internet or do you kind of long for the days where we had these major labels that were backing up um, young jazz players? And I mean, Concord wasn't exactly a major label in its day. It was really a niche jazz label. Um, but it's now, of course, Concord is now a major label. I'm just curious to get your thoughts on that. Well, it was different times. And in those times, it was the only way really to do it. And, you know, if, if you had a record label that was interested in, in recording you, um, then, you know, that was, that was amazing because there was no other way uh, really of, 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 of doing that. And, of course, we, there were some labels, you know, a lot of the, the bigger labels, they had money to, to invest. And, I mean, when I was with Sony Columbia, uh, I made two albums for them, Kiss and Tell and, and Nightlife, and we were able to have, a, you know, a pretty big budget. But it, funny enough, I was thinking about that, uh, it, it cost more to, to, to make records in, in those days. I could actually make a similar record to that now, actually in this room. Uh, but of course, the, the, the thing was, because, because there was a, a record industry uh, as well, you would, get a, uh, you would get a profile because of that, because they would... They would promote you, and uh, you'd get interviewed for. We didn't have this kind of thing then, but you'd be interviewed for magazines and and things. Maybe even get on TV in those days. You, that 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 even happened. But you, you know, I'm not a great one of thinking of you know of the past of being better. There were there were some things that were really good and quite amazing, and probably can't be replicated now. Um, but I, I prefer now, to be honest, and, and I and I have a, a, a great optimism about the future uh, uh, as well. It's just different times, you know. Nothing stays the same. Yeah, it's so uh, true. And you know, the jazz guitar community has always been kind of a small group of guys that kind of you know the Benedetto players or you know people that are yeah. just big West aficionados within the jazz community itself too. But I feel like it's growing. I feel like there's more people interested in jazz guitar. There's a lot of younger musicians that are maybe coming in through like 
other genres of R&B, neo soul, and they're they're wanting to play like George Benson. I think that there's a lot of cool connectivity, and yeah. you are a player that definitely through the through these decades has connected a lot of these dots. Uh, one of the things I I love about your playing is that you've maintained such a beautiful approach to the arch top from really the acoustic angle of the arch top. And it's so rare because I, I know for me, the, the necessity being the mother of invention, I've had to be more and more electric as I've worked more and more and played in louder and louder bands. And, and um, I'm curious, did you feel like you kind of had to really, I know you obviously are very passionate about that sound, that approach with the fingers mm. and the arch top, <laughs> and that cool Yamaha that you kind of had made with the floating pickup on it. Um, do you feel like you kind of had to fight? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did, did you ever feel like you um, were having to fight to really stand to stay acoustic over the years and not go more um, playing more electric guitars? Um, or do you feel like it's just you've always had the opportunity to explore and expand the sound of the acoustic arch top? I think there's lots of things that I could have done and could still do. But the way I look at it, is that somehow, probably just because of the 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 life that I've had and at the time that these things happened, um, that I developed my own way of playing so that I I have a distinctive style of playing. So there's other things that I could do, and you know, sometimes and I say, well, why don't you do like a straight ahead album? You know, like play an L five, and I think, well. Yeah, I could do that, but there's 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 a, there's a few players that do that and do it great, do it better than me. So why why do I want to 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 be somebody else? So I've just kind of stuck with with what I do, and I've been criticised for it at, at times, you know, because um, you know some archtop guitar uh, jazz purists prefer a, a darker kind of thicker kind of sound that I play, whereas I like to have I don't like to have a, a lot of middle in my sound. I, you know, I have I have bottom end and I and I have highs uh, uh, as well. And I remember once doing a gig out, out in Australia and I had a problem with my guitar. And I was somebody lent me a an L five. It was it was a lovely, beautiful guitar, and I played it. But of course, it sounded like an L five. And uh, a lot of the real purists that were there that I that I knew I knew. They said, "That's the best sound you've ever had." And and why don't you play like that? I said, "Because it's not me. It's like it's like speaking, and somebody else's voice is coming out." You know, exactly. that's kind. Of, that's that's the sound I hear in in my mind. That's right. Uh, Beautiful man, and it's so cool to see someone really go, really dig into that because it's it's rare and and uh, in a way it's hard to get a good acoustic guitar sound live. I think Perry had some questions about that, so I didn't want to trample on Perry's questions. No, that's, that's, that's interesting stuff, John. That's great. Yeah. yeah, and you know, man, again, before I pass it to Perry, um, uh, a couple other little things. I see you have a gig at Ronnie Scott's in August, booked, Hopefully. right? <laughs> Fingers yeah. crossed. Yeah, <laughs> such a great, that's one of, I think we've all gotten a chance to play there. That's like, I think my favorite club I've ever gotten to play at. In yeah. the whole well, I used to play there in the 70s when, with, with Ronnie. Oh, <laughs> when it, he was still alive. It's so incredible going in there and seeing all the photos of all the players in there and yeah. that little green room in the back. <laughs> well, next time you go in there, when you walk into that room, the main room, if you look to the left with all the photographs up, the first photograph at the top is is a photograph of me from 
the album cover of Kiss and Tell. That's what I thought. I thought. Last time I went there, I thought, wow, they haven't ripped it down yet. I must be doing something right. <laughs> I had a feeling someone would go, oh, we'll get rid of him. He's been up there for ages. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, man. And, um, you know, I'm curious, just really quick uh, for our listeners, um, any other players that we should check out over across the pond that you'd recommend? I mean, I'm a huge Lewis Stewart fan. I, I love because yeah, he's really an L5 guy like me. But other guys yeah. that you'd recommend our listeners check out because a lot of people are listening to the podcast and learning about players and stuff too. Yeah, well, I, I can I can mention a few, and I'll I'll probably leave some out and get into trouble for for it. But I'll just I'll just say a few here. You know, one of the, one of the, the greatest jazz guitar players that we've ever produced here, also uh, from Scotland, is Jim Mullen. And of course, he, he he did a lot of work with the Average White Band, and and but he's an absolute monster of a a, a jazz player. And if and I, I'm surprised when when I because I work a lot in the states. When I talk about Jim, a lot of people don't don't know him. And uh, I would recommend anybody just just check out Jim Mullen because just so wonderful. There's another the guitar player uh, based in London now called Nigel Price, who has an, an uh, organ trio, who's a fantastic player. And on your side of the pond, of course, there's our friend Julian Large. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who yeah. I'm, I f- we first played together when he was 13. It's just quite amazing, and he's never changed. Just got a bit taller. That's all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. I love seeing that. I've seen that video of you guys playing. Oh, back he's, he's so lovely. Crazy. It seems like yesterday. Well, again, thanks for having for being. Hey, thank here. you. Man, I'd love to pass it over to my cohort Perry here. Okay. Well, thank. Nice talking to you, John. Thank you, Martin. Hey, hey Martin. Perry. This is uh, Perry Smith coming at you from Brooklyn, New York. I'm just so thrilled to get a chance to speak <clears> with you, and it's been uh, an honor. Uh, to hear and be a fly on the wall during this conversation, just to kind of hear uh, your stories about working with Stefan Grappelli and your upbringing. Uh, I've been a big fan of yours for a long time. Uh, growing up in the Bay Area, I remember hearing about um, your playing on like a DVD compilation, or maybe it was even a VHS compilation of fingerstyle jazz guitar. And All right. you were on there, and I was just blown away. And, you know, when I hear you play, it reminds me of like uh, a big band being orchestrated on the guitar. And so, you know, one of the questions I had for you uh, just initially off the bat was, were you listening a lot to Count Basie? Were you listening a lot to Duke Ellington? Was Charles Mingus, was this kind of stuff <laughs> part of the regular uh, music? You're very that? astute. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're kind of a Sherlock Holmes here because for, for a lot of guitar players, that's not always always obvious. You see, so many of my my influences were not guitar players. And, yeah, Count Basie was a big favorite of my dad's. Mm. And I, I grew up listening to Basie records. My dad took me to see Count Basie. I think I was about 12 or 13. Uh, went to see him in, in concert. And then, you know, when I told you I, w- I, I got that gig on the QE2 in right. 1973, we did one uh, jazz cruise and the Count Basie Orchestra came on. And they were on, the, on the, this cruise which, uh, for two weeks. Mm-hmm. So I got to, I got to jam, with, not, not with him, but with um, a lot of the musicians in the band. And I, I got to hang out a little bit with, with Freddie Green. I tried to play Freddie Green's guitar. <laughs> And I couldn't press the strings <laughs> down because I'm not kidding. It was that that far away. Really? 
we could go into a whole other thing about, about Freddie Green. Yeah, but also there were there were saxophone players like Ben Webster, uh, Coleman Hawkins, Lester Young, of course Louis Armstrong on, on trumpet and cornet. But some for, for single line line playing and this real beautiful kind of melodic improvisation. Uh, I think Stan Getz was was somebody that really did inspire me. Yeah. And actually that wasn't from my dad's record collection. That was my mum's record collection. She loved Stan Getz. Mm-hmm. And I love the way he used to play phrases. He'd, play, he'd, he'd improvise a phrase and then it would lead to another phrase and how sometimes he'd play in one register, then he would suddenly go up real high with real quite harsh notes, and then it'd be really beautifully and mellow. He had this uh, uh, incredible, incredible range. And so when I started playing in bands and trying to play uh, single-line solos in in jazz groups, I just had Stan Getz in my head uh, all all the time. You know, if you have guitar players that are influenced mostly by or almost exclusively by uh, guitar players or even one guitar player you can tell mm-hmm. you can just hear it you know they just it just it just carries on but why you know my influences are not so obvious which is why i was very impressed by your your question there it's because most of my influences were not guitar players right. even though it was hearing django that got me to play the guitar yeah, no, I mean that's that's what I was hearing, and I and I figured that was the case. I mean, I do hear so many wonderful influences into your playing, though. Um, obviously, Django is there, and a lot of the artists that you mentioned, but certainly Joe Pass. I feel like yeah. that must have had a huge influence on you, as it has had on me. Well, Joe Pass, along with Ike Isaacs, they were the two guitar players. Made me realize, you know, I think I could could probably do this. There was another thing as well. I heard a recording. Well, there were two gigs that I went to when I was when I was thirteen. My brother took me to see Jimi Hendrix at the Royal Albert Hall in London, wow. which was mind blowing. Yeah. And I think there's actually there's actually they found videos of uh, footage of that uh, recently. And then my parents, a few years later, took me to see uh, Andre Segovia in concert. And I got the same thing from those two concerts. Right. Now you think one is in that area and one is that. And I just thought both of them were amazing in, in their own ways. Yeah. But I can remember uh, Andre Segovia coming out and just sitting down on this piano bench with a footstool and just playing. And I thought, I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to walk on a concert platform and just sit down and play like that but i don't want to play that music as much as i like it because i'm a jazz musician though yeah. i want to play jazz how can i do that so really i listen to piano players mm-hmm. and i listen to bill evans and um old father Hines and all these piano players well now i could do that do that on the guitar but then i heard a recording of um merle travis mm-hmm. now this is completely out of in another area, again, I heard Mel, Mel Travis, I think it was called Walking the Bass or something, with this, this bass going. And I thought, wow, that can be done. 
And from a technical point of view, I thought, yeah, that, that's fantastic. And I started to think about something Earl Father Hines said, the, the great piano player. When he was, he realized when he was young, he needed uh, a, a teacher to help him. So he, he, was a, he was pretty smart as a kid. He said to somebody, uh, who's a good teacher? He said, oh, you've got to go to this guy. He's got the best left hand. There is. So they're great. Okay. So I thought about it. I said, well, who's got the best right hand? Right. <laughs> so he said, well, then there's another guy. He's got the best right hand. So he took lessons with both of them, <laughs> the left-hand player and the right-hand player. So right. I was inspired by musicians from other instruments and from other styles of music. Yeah. Because basically it's all, it's all the same eventually. It is. You and, know, when you're hearing Segovia and you're hearing Hendrix, you're getting that same feeling, that like connection to their craft and their artistry yeah. at the highest level. Uh, well, Jimi Hendrix's experience, that trio was basically a jazz trio. Right. I mean, um, Mitch Mitchell was a jazz drummer. Right, right. Uh, Mitch Mitchell, I've, I've got some, some films here, old, uh, old black and white British films, and he was a child actor. Oh, and wow. he appeared in some of those those old films, but he you know he took up drums, and because he was interested in drums, he he went and worked at a music store in West London, run by a guy who was a drummer, but was selling all kinds of musical instruments, and that guy was a, a gentleman called Jim Marshall, who will be familiar to you all. So Jim Marshall amplifiers. So uh, he came in one day. He said, "I'm." I'm so this is an amazing guitar player over from America, but we want to get real big sound. So yeah. Jim designed uh, amp, you know, amps, a rig, rig for him. And I, I knew Jim. I knew him very well. And, wow. you know, again, I, I can tell this story because I've got it straight, straight from him. He told me the story how they then made this. And I think it was actually for the Isle of Wight Festival. I think it was. I think that's – my brother was – I wasn't in the audience, but my brother was there. Okay. And so that how that that came about. But before that, oh, the other thing, the the reason um, the reason uh, Mitch Mitchell uh, was working in the store was because he actually went to Jim for lessons. Because okay. Jim also gave lessons in his little studio at, at at the back. So you find out all these connections, this interconnectedness. We tend to put things in little boxes, and well, that's a uh, Jimi Hendrix is over there, Segovia is over there. Chet Atkins is over here. And actually, it's all... I mean, Chet Atkins hugely influenced by Django Reinhardt. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, we're all in this community of guitar players. We're all benefiting from, from everybody that we hear, we listen to, we soak up those influences. And, you know, I've certainly been influenced by your playing for a long time. And part of the reason I was excited to speak with you today was because more recently... Uh, I've just been playing a lot with the fingers on my right hand. I've been dropping the pick for certain periods of time. And there's something wonderful about, you know, phrasing with your fingers in your right hand yeah. and get, getting rid of the pick for a second. There's something so natural about it. And the phrasing kind of seems to be like a little bit uh, more human, Yeah, I want to say. Like it's, it's not necessarily as strict or accurate all the time as you can get with the pick. The sound can have a different vibe. It's almost like... Um, a drummer switching to brushes or something, yeah, like changing up the timbre and then going back to sticks. Talk a little bit about, um, you know, how important 
your artistry is developed from the right hand and the phrasing you get from the fingers as opposed to the pick. I know you use the pick sometimes, but primarily yeah. it's the sound and the phrasing from the fingers. It's all in the right hand. <laughs> the whole thing in this style of guitar playing. It's why, you know, guitar players that I know and really good players, they'll say, show me that thing you did. And I play it and then they'll look at my left hand. I said, you're looking at the wrong hand. It's, it's all, all in this one. This is where it all happens. Uh, yeah, I started out playing with a pick. So for the first, I guess, probably probably the first 15 years or 10, 15 years, I only played with a pick. Then I started to play. When I thought about playing solo, I realized that because I had all the, I had Bill Evans going on in my head, <laughs> you see. But I, that's what I wanted to be on guitar. And how you, you can't really do that with the pick. So I just put the pick down and started to play in finger style. And the, the more I got into it, the more I just preferred playing finger style. I mean, still play with the pick uh, when it's appropriate. And I remember because I, uh, I worked quite a few times with, with, uh, with Joe Pass. Mm -hmm. We played a few concerts together. And he used to talk about that. And he said that he preferred to play fingerstyle because you have that direct contact with the strings. And there's definitely something about it. And I know that I would sometimes play in groups with, with horn players and you play bebop lines and things. And one of the things I had to do was try and hold back a little bit, just a, just a real fraction, because the attack was more instant with a pick. And when you've got a, a, a wind instrument player, there's that before they play. Right. Um, so I would, I would play it back. So actually what I do is, is on the right hand, I have my nails aren't that long mm -hmm. because what I want to do is, and I got this from listening to Ben Webster, the great saxophone player, that very breathy sound. <laughs> you know, before the note even came out, there was this... <laughs> And then, then the note came out. It's fantastic. <laughs> so he that inspired me. So the way I play the finger style is so when I hit the note, I hit first of all with the flesh, yeah, and then follow that through with the nail, which is the so it's it's the it's the breath, the 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 flesh is the breath, then the nail is the note, and it's the middle of the note, and you have to find the middle of the so got that. So yeah. what happens is that usually that just comes a split second, a split second later. So you're not playing bang uh, on top of the note. It's hardly, you can hardly identify it. Also tone-wise, it helps as well because it, because you've got that attack, but you've also got that warmth of the the flesh touching the the, the string, as well. Again, yeah. if I hadn't listened to other instruments, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have got that. I mean, you described that so perfectly in the experience that I've had with it as well. Um, you know, I studied with the great Joe DiOrio at USC. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he would talk a lot about that kind of breath, and he would try to get it from different kinds of picks. Like, he would, he'd hold his guitar like this and angle his pick, and he'd have, like, sometimes these crazy big wooden picks or, like, you know, <laughs> even, like, embarrassed to say, like, tortoise shell picks that he would try to get tones out of and stuff, and to get that kind of breath from the pick but you can definitely get it from the fingers and 
Um, you know, I had studied a lot of classical guitar, not a lot, but a significant amount of classical guitar where I felt comfortable with the fingers, always used a hybrid technique. And then more recently, I was playing with someone and they were just like, I was like, oh, I'll just try this with the fingers. Because more and more people have talked about it, like how it's just a very refreshing way of playing. And the person said, hey, man, you know, you should do that more often. That sounds great. It's like, it's, it's a vibe. And exactly what you're talking about with the phrasing, you get like a, a way to kind of lay it back and dig into the feel a little bit more with the fingers. But the problem that I think still exists sometimes with the fingers is getting a tone that's going to cut, like say with a loud bur burning organ trio or like yeah. with the yeah. quintet or something you know, cutting that way can be tough sometimes. You know, yeah, there are times when when I when I would use a use a pick, and yeah, uh, so if I was in that situation, I would probably use use a pick. Yeah, yeah. And of course, if I was doing a lot of rhythmic things, I, I would use that. But then, I mean, what I what I do, I mean, we see the see the pick here, but yes, I just really got into this whole thing of just having the pick. So sometimes I do have a pick in my hand. Uh -huh. But it just kind of goes in in there, and I'll pick up a guitar. I'm sure I've got a guitar here somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy, I, isn't it? The I had was uh, Frank Potenza, and he used to put. He had a little holder for his pick that he would just place it on right on the guitar. Oh, do you remember that, John? Oh, <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, he had like a little comb on his guitar mm -hmm. that he could yeah. put picks in. Yeah, he had a great vibe. With this uh, Emily Remler and I used to work together, and she used to. She used to, right. she always did it, and then she closed yeah. her eyes, and then she, and I was always really worried that she would, you know, one day she, she'd swallow this thing. I, on a duo gig, Perry and I were doing, I swallowed a pick. Right <laughs> in, I Perry played something, and I was like, whoa. <gasps> oh, oh, <laughs> well, that's it. You breathe in, and it's gone. I did that as a kid, you know, and I, I can remember that. Five fifty one, which is small, you know. <laughs> if it was a three fifty one, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, I can do something like I might use the. You know, I I, I flip between the two. Sorry about my, my cans. I get a slight delay, so if I play with these cans on, I keep I start slowing down. Uh, sounds incredible. It's probably not a bad thing. Sounds really sweet. Wow, Martin. Yeah, and oh, I, I I just like that technique of going back between the fingers and the pick. And it seems like if you're going to dedicate your life to playing a hollow body, playing an arch top, really to get the most out of it, you got to have a multitude of techniques. You know. Um, yeah, and you know if if you pick up a guitar. I made a couple of records playing vintage instruments. I did one with uh, David Grisman mm -hmm. called Tone Poems 2, where we played vintage guitars and mandolins. And you pick them up and you, you kind of sit there. Some of them were meant to be played with a pick. Mm -hmm. and you would, but you would, I would just sort of sit mm -hmm. there and I would just find the sweet spot for them. And then Steve and I recorded the, the Scott Chinnery guitar collection and the blue guitars. And every guitar I'd... I was handed to, to, to play, I just spent a little bit of time just finding that that sweet spot was there. As far as the pick goes, for me, I use mandolin picks, um, and David Grisman got me onto these, so they're, they're great big things and very thick. But 
The reason I use them is because they're the closest thing to the sound I get from my fingers and the nails. Yeah. So and when I go from one, because if you go from one to the other, uh, you can hear that that change. But if we, I if I do it right, and if I'm if I'm on on the ball, as it were, you won't tell the difference. And you would say that the the foundation of your phrasing, your artistry, comes from the fingers, and the pick is an extension of that phrasing, right? Not the other way around. For for some guitar players, it's the pick is the foundation, and the fingers are an extension. You know? No, everything's in the mind. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, I I get all my students to just sing. Mm-hmm. If if you can if you can play the guitar, you know where the notes are, and if you can sing a you can sing a pretty good jazz solo, a good good chorus, mm-hmm. and it, it's just the matter of then connecting it from what's going on in your your head, mm-hmm. and you can you can vocalize it. Mm-hmm. So you know, I I just I I get them to do things like just just play a scale. Now and I'll sing them something. Now, guitar players have been playing for a long time. You'd be amazed. They think this. Oh, this is a child's game, but it's quite difficult. Yeah. Because you've you've got to connect it together. So after a while, you can you know you can sing little phrases. It's a great little exercise to do. Play little phrases. After a while, you the gap between you thinking, singing them, and then playing them gets less and less. Eventually, it comes together. So I'm what I'm what I'm doing. I have to uh, um, to tell everyone what I'm what, what I'm doing is you know you hear George Benson singing and playing, and I think well he's he's singing along with his playing. No, actually he's playing along to his singing. Exactly. He's vocalizing what he's thinking, what he's feeling, and playing, and he's transferring it to the guitar. So it's that way around. It's not singing along with your playing, but playing along to your singing. And once you get that flow going that way, the reason why sometimes we can't play what we we know we want to play is because the tides go in the wrong way. Right. It's it's going from the guitar to you and it needs to go needs to go the other way. It's it's that concept that you talk about that I've thought about for a while which is like don't let the guitar play you you Exactly. But the only thing I would ask about and I know we have to wrap this up, and I appreciate you being generous with your time, but the one question I would have to ask is, don't you think some of the technique that you work on informs your ears? Like, so there is, the tide yeah. does go the other way, and it can kind of build <clears throat> ears in terms of what you're hearing when you work on technique. Ultimately, it's a mixture. Yeah. And it, and it starts to go backwards and forwards. Yeah. So when I'm doing that, there, there, there will be times when something that I can play on the guitar 
that I know will sound in a certain way will inform me what 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 I'm going to play. Right. Um, but that's that's absolutely that's fine too. Right. But if you only play that way, you're never going to break out of that. You're just going to keep playing the same things mm-hmm. uh, all the time, and it will just give you that flow. Uh, and you play. By the way, uh, Will, I, yeah. I, I wanted to say I listened to a track of yours called "Walking." I don't want to say this right. "Walking in Karaoke." Oh right? yes, okay. And I was going to say to you, you're playing. You've got such a flow to your playing. It's like wow. a stream, just, <clears throat> Thank just, you. just going along. Yeah. And that's one of the the difficult things to to really get happening. You know, you've arrived when you can do that. When you can have that flow going all the time there's no kind of interruption oh my gosh i'm honored i'm honored that you would listen to a track of mine um i don't have any finger technique i was just using a pick was it a solo guitar track yeah it was it was beautiful thanks on a a flat top coming from you wow thank you yeah but that really struck me was was that the flow you have and that's what we need to get because we can learn things even when i'm i'm working on something new uh it won't flow at first because I'm just kind of, as I say to all my students, I'm in the laboratory (laughs) (laughs) with the test tubes and the Bunsen burners and just hoping nothing will blow up. And then once, once I've, it's a big mistake to pick up the guitar and try and play it straight away. Like it's a performance piece. Hmm. Just give yourself a little bit of time, even before you even pick up the guitar, think about it. I do all my practicing here. And then when I've got a little idea of what I'm going to do, I come in, pick the guitar up, and I've formulated a lot of it then. Yeah. And I find that I'm not wrestling so much with, with the guitar because I've already played it hundreds of times in my, in my mind. So, it, yeah, kind of getting that, that flow is, is, is really important. Speaking of that flow, as we wrap up here, can we play some more, uh, some more of your playing on Ain't Misbehavin'? Yeah, sure. Uh, remind me of the clarinet player on this. Okay, the clarinet player uh, is an English clarinet player called Alan Barnes, uh-huh, uh-huh. and he's a, a multi-award-winning jazz musician uh, from the UK. Wonderful, wonderful musician, and plays all the saxophones. And But I love his clarinet playing, and I actually managed to convince him to make a record, just the two of us, and just playing the clarinet. And then we did a tour together, because sometimes he plays, he'll play baritone sax, he even plays a bass saxophone, baritone, tenor, alto, soprano, and everything. And we did a tour together, and I just remember the first night we turned up, and he said, I'm loving this gig already. He just had a clarinet <laughs> in his, this, this little case. Instead of all I said, doubles. yeah, stick with me. See that? <laughs> he's, a, he's a wonderful, wonderful musician. So here is Ain't Misbehaving. Thank you. 
gorgeous, Martin. Oh, thank you. Well, that kind of came about because, my again, my dad's record collection, he used to listen a lot to Fats Waller. And if you listen to Fats Waller, he was, I mean, he was a superstar of his day. He was a great singer, entertainer, vaudevillian uh, actor. But you listen to his piano playing and it's the most virtuos, virtuosic, I'm using that word again, uh, piano playing. It's just quite amazing the way he played. And there was incredible subtlety in his left hand, that stride. So that's what I tried to get with that. Of course, that was a big hit for him, uh, Ain't Misbehaving. I mean, that's, go- that's going back, I guess, nearly 100 years, isn't it? Yep. <laughs> and the way you capture the stride on the guitar. And what a great song choice. I- I'm sure you agree. That song, you just can't help but get that stride vibe going. Like, it's got yeah, s- the way the chords move. They walk up. It's just, it just feels so good. It's, it's such a... Old Klug yeah. did a really nice... Old Klug did a really nice version of uh, Ain't Misbehaving. Uh, if you ever get a, if, if you've ever heard it, if you've, you get a chance to listen to it. Now he Earl is an amazing player. He's got such a, an advanced sense of harmony and a beautiful touch in, in his playing. We 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 played together on one occasion, and it was it was just it was fantastic. And he's one of those players that's just steeped in the tradition of the music. Yeah. You know, he's the, he's the guy that kind of. I guess kind of in, invented was one of the very first people to kind of the smooth jazz movement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, th- that's, that's another thing. But when you listen to, you just, you know, sit down with him and play and you just go, wow, this is, this is the real deal. Mm-hmm. Such a great player. Wow. So Martin, thank you so much for joining us today. It's such an honor. Well, thank you. Can you tell our listeners the best way to follow you online and keep in touch with you and maybe talk about your uh, mentorship program? Sure. Okay, there's a few things. The easiest thing is just to go to my website, martintaylor.com. When you go there, you can go into all kinds of things. One of the things you'll see there is become a patron, and that takes you to my Patreon site, which I absolutely love doing. I'm working on that all the time, creating new content, um, I, I, I film, uh, sessions in here. Um, I interview other guitar players like this. Right. And, uh, we have a hangout once a month with a, an open mic for anybody that wants to, wants to do that. But I've got just loads of content. Also some of the live, uh, concerts uh, that I've done over the years I, I put on there. So, um, yeah, it's, it's something I really love to do. And of course, then I have my, uh, teaching site, on artist works you'll find that um on my website as well and i've had that site since 2009 it's kind of it's in, interactive and we were like some of the the, the early pioneers of that it was, it was actually jimmy bruno mm-hmm. that got me onto onto doing it. he recommended that i that i did it so that's a site where students can anytime just send a video to me and then i review that and uh uh, film a response for everyone to watch. So we all learn from it. And then, of course, I've had to stop my uh, my gu- guitar retreats uh, during this time. But I, I do believe that the retreat we've got at the beginning of September in the Catskills, I, I do believe that's that's going ahead this year. We go to different places. We go to California from Catskills, Sicily from Italy, uh, Scotland. 
and they're just just great vacations for yeah, people that want to just play guitar. And, and the other thing that I do is, is, of course, I have my own range of guitars. That again, you can find that on, on the website, mm-hmm. and these are hand built for me by Fibonacci in in England. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I keep busy with one thing or another. And of course, I'm writing books. I wrote three books last year for fundamental changes. I'm just working on a, a fourth one now on um, on improvisation. It's the third of a trilogy on on improvisation. So even though I've not been out on the road, I've been keeping busy here. Thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of High Action. We'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible, especially those who follow us on Patreon. If you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash Group. There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Once again, I'm John Story with New West Guitar Group, and thanks for joining us on High Action.